Thank you for the beautiful music, and may we come to Jesus this morning. That is the purpose of our gathering here this morning and today, to worship God, to be instructed by his holy word for our lives and for our future. Let's bow our heads. We need God this morning that we may receive instruction from his word. Heavenly Father, we present ourselves to you today asking that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, that we would have eyes to see the things that you want to show us from your word and from ancient sacred history. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We are looking in our Bibles this morning from the book of John, asking one of the toughest questions we could ever ask. It's a question that has haunted me probably for the last year, and it, it, it came to the forefront of my consciousness as I, in some of my devotional time off and on over the last little while, have been studying the 1888 materials and the letters and writings of Ellen White over a very critical point in our church's history. And probably a hundred times in the first thousand pages there that I've read, uh, it hearkens to the history of the Jews with a warning that we are on the edge or are already repeating the history of the Jews. How was it that Jesus was rejected? Probably one of the saddest verses in all the Bible. John 1 verse 12. He includes it in the very introduction to his gospel. Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. How could such a thing be? The very people, the, the very family that God had, had prepared for hundreds and thousands of years to introduce the Messiah to the world. The very 12 tribes that he organized for this very purpose would fail and it would have to be done by 12 disciples instead. How is it that his people that he sent messengers to prophets again and again when the one that they all pointed forward to would come that they would be so unprepared. Jesus, the healer who brought life, who brought hope, why? How could it be that he was rejected? It's a story in the Bible I don't like. Perhaps the best story in the Bible is also the worst story in the Bible. For at the cross is the brightest light that's ever shown in this world, and the most evil concentration of darkness, all in one spot. And as we study the cross, which we will this morning, but without studying the cross, we will study the shadow of the cross and that which led up to it. And it began early in Jesus' ministry. What went wrong when he came to his own with the message? And the rest of the Gospel of John explains the story or the thesis set forth in John 1 and verse 12. How was it that he could come to his own and his own would receive him not? We will begin the story in John chapter 5, and I do not have any more verses on the screen, so you will have to turn there each time. I will have some other things on the screen. It went south quick when we get to John chapter 5. Jesus is in the temple that was built for him. The Old Testament prophet would say this temple would have more glory than Solomon's temple for the desire of nations would be in this temple. And the one that it was built for was there at the temple 
to reveal the glory of the Father in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus was at a pool not far from the temple, a very miserable place with miserable noises and sounds. It wasn't the sounds of cheer and of gladness. It was the sounds of suffering and of sickness and of death. People did go there to die. We're talking about the pool of Bethesda. If they could hold on to some string of hope, they would be healed. As Jesus walked into this infirmary and looked, Jesus in his heart longed that every single one of them could be healed. That's what he came to do, to set us free to give us a future and to give us a hope. And as he looked around, there was one case of supreme wretchedness in advance of the others. John said he was sick for 38 years and there he lied. Jesus asked him, would you like to be made well? And uh, a smile at first perhaps, but then he remembered there was nobody there to carry him when he needed help to the water. And there Jesus is. Jesus would only heal one person that day. What was it that would stop Jesus from being able to heal the others? He wasn't the only man in need. The man beside him needed the same thing. And so did many others. What stopped Jesus? I mean, it's a great story. But not the whole thing. Because of what didn't happen that day. John, this disciple, the Gospel of John, specifically records the relationship between Jesus and Jerusalem. While other Gospels may talk about the mob at Nazareth, the situation at Capernaum, and other places, John specifically focuses on the relationship between Jesus and Jerusalem, this capital city of his people. And so that is what we are focusing on this morning. And this is where everything fell apart. It was an avoidable collision. This did not have to happen. Or did it? For Jesus, he had to steer straight into this. This was a collision that had to happen. And so he orchestrated and he designed the encounter to create the conflict. He could have healed any other day. The sick man was there all days of the week and so were the rest. But Jesus chose and planned to do it on the Sabbath. Because that would create a scene. And beyond doing it on the wrong day for the Pharisees, Jesus would go even farther of that to, than that to create more of a scene. In John chapter 5 and Verse 7, the sick man answered, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Immediately the man was made well. He took up his bed, and he walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. That bed, it's hard to hide a bed when you carry a bed. It just as well could have been a placard. It got that much attention. The heads turned, the eyebrows lowered. The lips stiffened. The man was setting aside the requirements of the Pharisees. Jesus 
and asking this man to carry his bed made the man-made traditions of the Pharisees void. And thus, the collision happens. Oh, they were not happy. It drew attention to what happened. They questioned who it was. They knew who it was. The sick man didn't, but Jesus came back. And then he told him who healed him. Verse 13, the man departed and told the Jews it was Jesus who made him well. And that right there, it was all over. The unimaginable was already set into place. In the next verse, in verse 16, for this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. What stopped them from killing him? The Romans. The Jews would have killed the Messiah right here if it was all up to them. But they did not have that legal jurisdiction. It was more complicated. So they had to begin politicizing, positioning, and maneuvering. And for the rest of the book of John, from John chapter 5, preparations were made for Jesus' death. Jesus answered them in verse 17, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. Verse 18, therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also that God said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now Jesus, boy, he was well-timed. He wasn't the same in every place and in every situation. He was true to his principles, but different situations called for different things. And at that, Jesus gave a very lengthy answer and a legal defense of his messiahship and of healing this man on the Sabbath. The ones who planned, the Sanhedrin who planned to judge Jesus, found themselves being the one who was judged. Jesus described himself as the one that would come. All would hear his voice. Those that have done good to the resurrection of life and those that have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation, down in verse 28 and 29. Jesus continues his defense in the last third of the chapter. He gives them the fourfold witness, the evidence of his messiahship. They had rejected John, was their first mistake that Jesus mentioned. They rejected his miracles, his signs, and his works. They would not listen to the voice of the Father. Sometimes I wonder if that witness is parenthetical because the other ones they could hear and see. Jesus says they didn't, they, they didn't hear and see the Father. And the last, maybe the one he spends the most space on, Scripture. If you don't hear that, how are you going to hear anything else? Oh, we think that Jesus, when the accusations were made against him, was the one who was meek and mild. Led like a lamb to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Well, that was true at the end, once the mob had coalesced at his crucifixion. But it wasn't true earlier. Earlier in his ministry, when the accusations were leveled against Jesus, Jesus met them. Jesus opened his mouth, he answered them, he was anything but silent at every accusation in John 5, in John 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. Every single accusation brought against him, he answered. You can't understand the mob 
they yelled, crucify him, crucify him. We'd rather have Barabbas. Unless you understand the mob that was there before that, because that wasn't the beginning of the mob. But once the mob has entrenched and the hysteria is heightened to the point, there's no reason, there's no rationality. We'd rather have Barabbas. There's no purpose in answering them then. And thus, Jesus set us a very good example in the final hours by not answering their accusations anymore. He'd already done it. The time comes when the accusations are made, the barbs are thrown, the knives cast, and you don't answer. But there's also a time when the accusations are made, the arguments described, and you do answer. Why was Jesus rejected by his own at Jerusalem? I'm going to give seven points in my sermon this morning. You can write them down if you like. I don't have them in a handout, but they'll be on the screen. Why was Jesus rejected? Jesus was rejected in Jerusalem because he contested the authority and the requirements of the rulers. His life, his practices was a protest. It was a sign against them. What he did undermined their authority, their influence, and their privilege. Jesus came as one whose law was higher than theirs. And thus the stage was set for the unbelievable to happen, for the one that came to heal and to give life and to give hope. When you get to John chapter 7, Jesus is back at Jerusalem again, or almost. His brothers are telling him to hurry up and go to Jerusalem. He's delaying. And here's this phrase in John that's repeated several times. In uh, John chapter 7 and verse 6, Then Jesus said to them, that's his brothers, My time has not yet come. That's the reason Jesus didn't do much ministry in Jerusalem. If he would have focused on Jerusalem, he would have been killed much earlier. He withdrew from Jerusalem to save his own life for a little while. It says in verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its works are evil. And if there's one verse in John that would describe why Jesus was rejected, that's it. That's the verse. There are others also, though. It was because, oh, they would have been very happy for Jesus to come and expose the sins of the Romans. They were busy doing that already. And boy, the Romans had plenty of them. Sure, Jesus would have if he would have been in Rome. That wasn't his audience. The mob against Rome, the zealots, the revolutionaries, the rebels had formed their coalitions, but Jesus didn't join them. Oh man, they would have been so excited to hear in Nazareth when Jesus came that, to say that he, had, he was coming to set the captive free, as he quoted from Isaiah, and the oppressed. What better news? They've been waiting and waiting for somebody to come relieve them from the oppressor. And if there's ever been an oppressor and an oppressed in society, it was then. The Romans were as dark and as evil as any. The Jews suffered as much as any. And they're waiting for Jesus to get on board with the politics and the agendas of the day. He didn't seem to sense which way the wind was blowing. 
John confronted one of the rulers, Herod. Jesus didn't spend any time in his ministry challenging the power structures of the Romans. Now he did the power structures and the rulers of the Jews, but not the Romans. That was a mistake if he did not want to be led to the cross. Why was Jesus rejected? Because Jesus exposed the sins of his audience, the Jews, and not the Romans. Jesus would become a victim of the mob because Jesus did not join the mob. And when you do not become part of the mob, as the snowball picks up, as the flywheel's turning, it rolls over everybody who doesn't join the mob. And as you go through John, the mob continues to build, which is another reason that Jesus was rejected. Because he never once yielded an inch or capitulated or pandered to the clamorings of the mob. And the mob was getting angrier and angrier and building towards the closing scenes. You can see the mob in John chapter 8. In the last verse, John chapter 8, verse 59, but they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and so passed by. Jesus had to escape the mob, even in John chapter 8, or he would have been stoned right there. Oh, it was, the, it was the elites, it was the Pharisees, it was the rulers, the Sanhedrin back in chapter 5. But the coalition grows. The intrigue behind scenes, the positioning, the maneuvering, and the politicizing was going on for some time. So we go back to chapter 7, and we see the angle that is taken to undermine the influence of Jesus. Now it's the influence of Jesus versus the influence of the Pharisees. Who could win the support of the crowd? It, will it be Jesus or will it be the Pharisees? And now there's a showdown. There's a contest and influence. Maybe not a, a voting a box, but of who will be respected and supported and followed. The accusations are leveled, one against another. John chapter 7, Verse 12, there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he is good, and others said, no, on the contrary, he's a deceiver. However, no one spoke openly for fear of the Jews. What were they saying? Now about the, or about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught, and the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? And they said it quite contemptuously. Looking down on Jesus for his lack of education. It was the snobbishness. It was the elitism. His level of education was inferior. His culture was inferior. His accent was inferior. He's named as a Galilean multiple times in this chapter. And in other chapters, he's called a Samaritan. I'm not sure why. But anything other than us, he's not one of us. The crowd gets angrier and angrier. The attitude, do you understand what Phariseeism is? Our small groups were studying thoughts on the Mount of Blessings and there's multiple definitions of Phariseeism in the book. <clears throat> Phariseeism. 
It's the legal religion. But even the legal religion, Jesus could have fixed that if it wasn't for a problem that was deeper. It was their attitude of elitism. They could not be told by anybody else. They could not learn from anybody else that was not one of them. And because of that, nobody could correct their religion that was from outside. And the coalition from within was very tight and unbreakable. Elitism is one of the worst sins of the heart and scourges on this world. It shows its ugly head all around in many different ways. Every single one of us are prone to this attitude of contempt towards others. And racism, if you believe that your race is superior, better than elitism, if you believe that a certain race or an individual belonging to that race is automatically guilty just because of their color of skin, it's racism. It's not the only divide. If you believe that your generation is superior to all other generations, it's elitism. If you make somebody else's vo voice irrelevant just because they're too young or too outdated, Either way, elitism, it's snobbishness. You won't listen to anybody else outside of you and your kind. It's happened in our church before. 1888 uh, conference in Minneapolis. A.T. Jones, he was from the wrong coast, along with E.J. Wagner, and he was too young on top of that. He lacked the credentials. How can we learn from somebody like this? A.T. Jones, a young military man. E.J. Wagner, you think we're going to learn from a medical doctor? I don't think so. We're theologians. And once you draw the circle around you and your theologians, anything can happen from there. You look for the voice that affirms. Pastors can do it. Learn from nobody but ourselves. Look down on everybody except for those that have the same credentials. It can happen with the scholars. Wall themselves off. Nobody else is welcome to the table. Input in the discussion. Except our own. Protestantism came as a double-edged sword to elitism. The Protestant reformers were highly educated well-learned men, but they tore down these barriers, the wall of partition. They gave the Bible into the hands of the people so that the common people could understand. Anybody could pray, not to the elite, or ask favors of them or forgiveness, but straight to God. In Jesus' day, the doctors scorned Jesus for his lack of endorsement. Why was Jesus rejected? Because he was not endorsed by those that he needed the endorsement from. He was not endorsed by those on top. And again and again, they would point to that very reason as a reason not to listen to this man. John chapter 7, we're still there. The soldiers come back. Verse 45, the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to him, Why have you not brought him? Verse 46, John 7, the officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. 
Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know the law is accursed. Oh, they had contempt for the crowd. They don't know anything. They, don't, they haven't been trained the way we've been trained. And because Jesus was not endorsed by a Pharisee or a ruler, he belonged to the contemptuous crowd. He was discredited. He was set aside and he was dismissed. Lack of credentials. Lord, have mercy on us. We better be careful. We better check our own hearts at who we're willing to listen to and who we're willing to write off. Ellen White would write in 1888 materials about this very situation. Let all search the scriptures. How many search the scriptures? And it's just going to get highlighted. All search the scriptures diligently for themselves and not be satisfied to have the leaders do it for them. This is written to Seventh-day Adventist. Else we shall be as a people in a position similar to that of the Jews in Christ's time, having plenty of machinery, forms, and customs, but bearing little fruit to God's glory. It is time for the church to realize her solemn privileges and sacred trust and to learn from the great teacher. Do you want to be in that position? I want to be in that position. You want to heed the counsel? Study the scriptures for yourself. It's easy to farm out your job to study for yourself to somebody else. Well, they don't believe it, or they believe it, so, and they're very smart, so. That's the way to sell your soul. If you're not willing to find out for yourself, what the Bible says. Page 166 of 1888 materials, Ellen White would write, there is positive danger that some who profess to believe the truth will be found in a position similar to that of the Jews. They will take the ideas of the men they are associated with, not because by searching the scriptures they conscientiously accept the teachings and doctrine as truth, I entreat you to make God your trust. Idolize no man, depend upon no man. No preacher, no scholar, no writer. Don't do it if you care about your own relationship to Jesus. Let not your love of man hold them in places of trust that they are not qualified to feel to the glory of God. For man is finite and erring, liable to be controlled by his own opinions and feelings. Every single one of us are in danger of our own biases, opinions, and feelings. Self-esteem and self-righteousness are coming in upon us, and many will fall because of unbelief and unrighteousness, for the grace of Christ is not ruling in the hearts of many. And thus Jesus was rejected. The fourth reason was because the elite refused to listen and learn from an inferior. If you look contemptuously on people you consider to be inferior to you and you can't learn from them, woe be on your soul. God is going to have a way to test us also. 
none of us know the mind of God or can perceive his workings. But the test will come upon the Seventh-day Adventist church also. And upon every one of us as individuals and upon every one of our families and upon every local church will have their own test in the end times to know what spirit we are of. The things that God leads us through peels away the layers to show us where we really stand. The fifth reason they rejected Jesus was because pride prevented them from admitting they made a misstep. It's bad enough to make one mistake in the beginning. They should have gotten it when he was born. They should have gotten it when he started out his ministry. But once they had made a misstep, once they had cast their decision, they were too proud to admit they were wrong. And thus, in the last part of Jesus' ministry, when the evidence mounted, they had two choices. They either would retrace their steps and get on the right track, or they would entrench and dig in. I believe that God will allow every single person here in this room to make a mistake. I believe God will allow us to make a misstep to test us once we see more evidence where it's going, if we're willing to back up, if we have the humility of heart to back up and be on the right track. Now, this is going to be a tricky thing in the last days because the other side of it is that we are also going to be tested to see when nobody else is standing with us and we're all alone. If we will yield an inch from the truth that God has called us to stand on, now, how can we be tested in both ways? How can we be tested to see if we're bold enough, daring enough to stand and not move an inch on the things we know to be true and also tested when we make a mistake to have the humility of heart to back up and get on the right path? That holds the two sides of Jesus' character in tension, which is the character that we're going to have to reflect to weather the last days. To have the indomitableness and the boldness not to back up at all. And the humility to back up and get on the right track when we need to. Pride prevented them from admitting they made a misstep when it came down to it. Why am I preaching this sermon? It's my last opportunity to preach in this pulpit before my family heads west to Spokane. Perhaps to inject a little self-doubt into our spiritual journeys. To inoculate ourselves, if possible, from repeating what's happened before. It mounted, it built, and it deepened. The fifth reason, well, I got a quote here. This is also from 1888 materials. When the Jews took the first step in the rejection of Christ, they took a dangerous step. But when afterward evidence accumulated that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, they were too proud to acknowledge that they had erred. So with the people of our day who reject the truth. They do not take time to investigate candidly 
with earnest prayer. We have a week of prayer starting here Monday night with Jim Castor, who's worked with the General Conference and ASAP and GYC as prayer coordinator and many different events. We need God. We need to search the scriptures and we need help from above. Come out this week, starting Monday night at 6.30 right here, 6.30, 7.30, and every night this week, the week of prayer. They did not take time to invest. They probably were too busy and had other things to do. Take time to investigate candidly with earnest prayer the evidences of the truth. And they oppose that which they do not understand. Well... Goes on to say, just like the Jews, they take it for granted. They have all the truth and feel a sort of contempt for anyone who should suppose they had more correct ideas than themselves of what is truth. All the evidence produced, they decide, shall not weigh a straw with them. And they shall, they tell others that the doctrine is not true. And afterward, when they see the light, evidence, they were so forward to condemn, they have too much pride to say, I was wrong. Folks, do you, do you see what's coming? The mob, the angry mob is already forming in our, in our world, in our church. Look at the world, look at what's happening. Jesus said in the last days, Matthew 24, he says you're going to be hated by all nations. Talk about a coalition. And when you don't join that coalition, you get mowed over by it. And the angry mob forms. Says they still cherish doubt and unbelief and are too proud to acknowledge their convictions. Because of this, they take steps that lead to results of which they never have dreamed. And that's what happened with the crowd, the angry crowd in John. They matured and developed. The poison deepened, became more toxic and more venomous until when they were standing there before Pilate, they demanded the unimaginable. And it will happen in the last days as well. The sixth reason that Jesus was rejected is because the mounting evidence, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, kill Lazarus. They lost their minds. He healed the blind man in John chapter 9. Oh, we are Moses' disciples. We're not his disciples. They didn't do anything Moses said, but they wanted to hide behind that label. Same thing today. People are hiding behind the label of Jesus all the time, not doing a thing he says. <clears throat> they had the evidence, folks. And more and more came. But then they were too proud to accept it. And the final reason that Jesus was hung on the cross is because the coalescing of the mob emboldened them to demand the unthinkable. And when it deepens and when the flywheel picks up momentum, stay out of the way. The consolidating, the alliance is formed, the intrigue cemented, party lines drawn, polarization like never before, the partisan spirit, either one way or the other. They work themselves into a frenzy, good judgment out the window, Irrationality. I could have printed off any number of, of news articles. I just quickly chose one. 
and you get the, and you get the cyber warriors on edge. The 13-year-olds were right when they told Anderson Cooper on CNN, oh, we're willing to say on social media, we'd never say in person. And they posted on social media because there's not the consequences. A mob lacks a face. It's impersonal. And so is the internet. But when you are talking to somebody you disagree with in person, you have consequences. They're there. They have facial expressions. They have words. You know there's going to be a reaction. You have to feel them. They're not just going to feel you. And so it is. The man's there at the restaurant with his wife in the evening in Arkansas, enjoying his meal, his phone starting to explode. He's wondering what's happening on campus. He's a professor of the University of Arkansas. I'm talking about Assistant Professor Kyle Quinn. And the point of the spear reached him. And everybody, he was already getting death threats. His wife was being named. His children were being named. He had to go sleep somewhere else that night. Finally, somebody felt guilty enough to come forward. His picture was up. Several states away, there was a, there was a protest happening of white supremacists or a march of white supremacists. Confusion happened. The internet mob was so aggressive that the real man in the photo, Andrew Dotson, came forward expressing guilt. The attacks were directed at Kyle Quinn. They got the wrong guy. It happens all the time. Once you work yourself up into a frenzy, you're out of your mind. Hysteria. You just roll on with what everybody else is saying. You just pile on, pass it on. Folks, beware when people are speaking venomous and toxic words. Ellen White would write, and I don't have this one on the screen, but I read it, that when she was there in the 1888 conference in Minneapolis, and she herself did not understand how this thing was going to go completely. And when she heard the jokes against Wagner and the mockery of this doctor, there was this young one that was teaching them things, and the, the venom against him, she said, I questioned for the first time if we were really right or about the law in Galatians. She made a theological... Theological barb was placed in her mind, not because of a theological argument, but because of an attitude. And when the toxicity builds in the venom, watch out to any person who dares to voice a dissenting voice, a dissenting opinion. The mob descends in force, pouncing on its next victim, cowering any opposition into silence becomes entirely intolerant. And thus Jesus was killed. He was a dissenting voice that exposed their own sins and their own evil. Today I would ask us, and I would invite us to check ourselves, to check our hearts, to check our attitudes, 
who we're listening to, to check our words. And when the test comes, when we realize we've been wrong about something, would we be willing to throw it in reverse and get on the right track? Are you willing to listen to nobody except your own kind and the people that are in your circle? Are you willing to listen to somebody from the other side? The world is going to only increase. The heat is only going to increase in America and all around the world. But God is going to have a people who are going to stand with the character of Jesus, just like Jesus did in the book of John. Their testimony will be true. Their spirit will be right. There will be many questions in the church and many discussions. But all who are willing to humble their hearts before God and to seek him with their whole heart in humility, God will carry them through. Amen? Amen. In humility. Do you guys want to be there? Seeking God in humility. Willing to learn. Willing to be corrected. May God help us. At the end of this message this morning, we are going to have a special feature. In the Village Church, from time to time, we have uh, features from different parts of the world some that are not safe to air on the internet or to live stream from closed countries or places where the climate is dangerous. And uh, we are going to have one of those stories at this time. So.